0: Hi there, welcome to the More Simple Podcast. This is a podcast for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them. I am Mo, and I am your host, ready to spark your curiosity as I take you on this adventurous ride of exploring cultures through the stories of my guests from all over the world. On this show, we get really personal discussing salient issues that are relevant to our contemporary age and also building community around them as our guests exercise courage and vulnerability in sharing their life's experiences we hope that in turn you are inspired by them and that you get the courage to set your own stories free enjoy the ride and thank you so much for listening Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today I'm excited to feature a guest who has done a lot of work in interest, you know, um, leadership and has a passion for African development. Before I bring him on the show officially, I'd like to just say a special thank you to people at CrossPod for uh, making this, you know, very um opportunity possible for the podcast. So today with me in the studio is Mr. Robert Kabera. He is a native of Rwanda, where he and his family lived through the horrible 1994 Rwandan genocide. And subsequently, his family and himself spent six years in refugee camps. When he was 11, he was able to resettle in Memphis, Tennessee, where um, eventually he attended and graduated from Stanford University. Robert founded an alternative credit rating system agency called Credit Marks in Ghana with the objective of helping to extend credits into traditionally underserved markets. He has helped over 50 energy companies in nine countries to provide clean tech to more than 6,000 people living off the electricity grid. So that's really um, an amazing fit right there. He has served as a chief consultant for the U.S. Africa Development Foundation energy investment portfolio under the Obama administration's Power Africa program, and in 2018, he was added to the global U.S. Forbes 30 under 30 list in the energy sector for his industry work and research. So everyone, please join me in welcoming Robert Cabrera to the podcast. Hello, Robert. Hi, Mo. Really nice to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right, so let's just get started. I usually like asking my guests, like the first principal questions, telling us a little bit about your childhood. Now, I've had two Rwandan survivors on the show to talk about just, you know, what that has been like. So I'd just like for you to add to that narrative. What was it like, you know, especially Rwanda as a child before the genocide and what you can recall after the genocide?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My my life before the war was very pleasant. Um, I lived uh, in Kigali, obviously in the outskirts of town. Um, I was the youngest of uh, four kids. Uh, Dad was an engineer who traveled uh, abroad a lot. He came back with many nice toys. Uh, Mom was amazing. I remember my childhood being happy, very pleasant, a lot of wonderful memories. A lot of the family members would come around my home for summertime. So very happy pleasant, loving childhood uh, leading up to the genocide.
0: And um, what was life like after the genocide, if you can remember?
1: Yeah, so life in Rwanda after the genocide was very transient because everything changed after that. And so it became like a post-apocalypse. Buildings were damaged, dead people everywhere. Um, landmines, gunfires, grenades going off in the distance, dogs eating dead people, uh, having to walk from place to place because the place you're at was not safe. So it came from being this safe, loving, secure environment to literally overnight. The the war started on April 6, 1994, which was a Wednesday when the president's plane got shut down around 7, 8 p.m. in the evening. At midnight, the gunfire started, and literally overnight, everything changed to a state of total uncertainty. And that's been my life for the last uh, 26 years. And that uncertainty from a young age is actually what has gone on to inform my career, as I'm going to explain later on. Hmm.
0: It's amazing how some circumstances that are beyond our control can really change the tra- trajectory of our lives. And I think the challenge is to make something out of it. And if you can rise above, you know, big, painful, you know, traumatic events like a genocide and, you know, make something out of your life, I think that's very encouraging for those that might be in, you know, less fortunate situations, but maybe not as, you know, grand as um, surviving through a genocide. Now, um, have you visited everyone since then? And what's your view on, you know, Rwanda currently right now. I know your president, um, Paul Kagame, he has a lot of supporters. He also has a lot of detractors. But I can say, I mean, just looking at just what, what's happening in Rwanda and it being touted as the future of um, like Singapore, of Africa, we can see some economic development. I'm not going to go into some of the you know, downside and the upside, but what's Rwanda like to you and have you visited since then?
1: Yeah, so I think my answer is going to disappoint the audience. I haven't been since the genocide. And the way I answer that is that question is like asking a Jewish person that survived the Holocaust, have they been back to Germany since? I have no ties to it. I understand it's doing well, and I'm I'm happy for that. But again, uh, part of what not having any roots to Rwanda has allowed me to do is be a true Pan-African. I think the same way that people like Steve Biko felt, without having roots in one country... I feel affinity to the whole continent, which is why I spent my last five years in Ghana because that decision was based on merit. I felt Ghana merited the most attention given the opportunity, the times, and my set of skills. And so not having that tribe, country, blinder, which I think often limits Africans, has allowed me to truly do great things that I think I would have otherwise not done if I had been routed to one specific location.
0: I mean, I appreciate your response. And I mean, this is something that has worked for you. So there are no counter arguments for me. And I would say that perhaps your experience being African is also what's also helping you navigate other African you know, countries like Ghana and thriving very well. And that's definitely very understandable. So um, my last question on this genocide issue would be... What does it mean for you to be a survivor? I've, I mean, I've spoken to a couple of my friends who are from Rwanda and have gone through that. And it's always very interesting to hear what that means to them. But I'd like for you to share with our audience what, you know, so being a survivor, especially a genocide survivor, mean to you. Yeah,
1: it means several things. And part of it is informed by the experience itself. The way my family and I survived the genocide was we hid in a tunnel underground in the back of my house. And there were six people in my family. uh, But my father hit 11 more people. So it was 17 people. And we spent 22 days in that tunnel. And when my father brought the other 11 people of the opposite tribe, he was clearly putting himself in harm's way, right? But how he lived the rest of his life and the level of peace and contentment he had serving others informed me. Everything I do, the level of success I've had is because I, tr- I strive to use myself as a servant to those around me, to build my community. And that gives me a level of satisfaction that I otherwise would have not attained. that's number one. Number two, in that tunnel, a lot of the time in Western uh, narrative, when they speak of surviving and resilient, it's very much individualistic. We survived in that tunnel because we had a group mentality. We came together. We made decisions as a group. We made sacrifices as a group. So I believe that when you are going through hardships, whether it's Black Lives Matter today, whether it's climate change for the world or any other or the pandemic as a society, our capacity to survive and overcome is much more increased when you approach it as a group. And that is the second lesson that sort of informed my thinking. I never go at projects on my own. I find the best people. But the group dynamics is amazing at overcoming impossible odds. That's the second thing. And the third thing, I think, any hardship, whether it's a genocide, whether you're a war veteran or whatever hardships you've gone through, the analogy I'll give is it's sort of like rocks, right? Being through rocks, being pressed by rocks. One of two things can happen. They can either crush you or they can refine you. The same process can either crush you or refine you. What you make of it is up to you. Uh, but we are built as individuals with an internal resilience that if if we give it a chance, half a chance, we are able to be the best we can. And especially those of us that go through hardships. That's what it takes to be an entrepreneur, to be an academic, right? To sit through that uh, thesis or to sit through that impossible class or to to go through that defense where everybody's coming at you. Those are the same skills it takes to take hits and keep going. And so I think war has been a blessing in the sense that from a young age, it has inspired in me a fierce sense of determination that nothing or no one can get in my way.
0: Wow. Um, Those are very good words. Great words, actually, um, Rob. And I think when you're talking about that sense of community and shared experiences, it reminds me of that concept of Ubuntu. I am because we are. And I can imagine because I mean, I moved to the U.S. 10 years ago. And one of the things I always keep moaning about here is it's so sometimes um, individualistic where we just focus on material gains and, you know, that self-serving concept. But I'm also very encouraged as an African because I I still thrive for community and it's been very hard building it and finding it, but it's what has really helped, you know, to keep focusing on what matters and how you can serve others. So thanks for that reminder. Now, um, can you share a little bit about just what life has been like, what, what was like when you landed in Tennessee, where there's some culture shocks and how did you just thrive and, you know, spin from that to what you're doing right now?
1: Absolutely. So my time in Tennessee was obviously informed by my time in the refugee camps. And it's actually because of my time in the refugee camps that I went on to study what I did. What I do for a living is energy, uh, specifically predictive AI. And believe it or not, we are the only company in the world that does what we do, which is bizarre, right? We have big companies, I don't know, Google or Siemens, and they are coming to us for our solutions. And the six years I spent in refugee camps between 94 and 2000 was mostly off-grid. And so uh, when I needed to read a textbook at night, it was sitting on a log outside on a kerosene lamp. And I became good at school, not because I wanted to, but it was a survival mechanism. When you're an immigrant in the U.S., Asian American, Mexican, you're mistreated. That level of mild Malice is magnified when you're an immigrant in the developing world. So the only place I had to justify my humanity was in the classroom. They would bully me outside of the classroom, but in the classroom that was my arena. And so I'd read my little science math books at night and I remember specifically in 1998 sitting on a log outside in Richie Camp in Botswana reading my book preparing for a test tomorrow. And each time I'm getting ready to read The night breeze blows and the kerosene lamp goes out. And I remember myself asking myself two basic questions. Number one, how do we get the lights on down here for everyone? And that's what drove my work in off-grid work years later. But secondly, how do we keep the lights on? And that second question of keeping the lights on is what inspired me to study uh, the grid in grad school. And the company I have now models the electric grid and we can tell you what's going to go wrong, where, what tree's going to hit the power line, how many people are going to lose power, months before either a thunderstorm, a hurricane, a wildfire happens. And so that was the camp. Now, when we moved to Memphis, um, kids are exceptionally cruel, especially when you're different, and especially the more like south they are. You know, people, I'd help people with their classroom work and then in recess, they'd ask me, can I read and write? Or a monkey's my cousin? Or do I have pet lions? Uh, but that didn't bother me, right? Because I knew I was like a master of learning things, right? I, when I moved in the sixth grade, I remember for the longest, I won all the spelling bees, all the math quizzes. And that made me cool. But when we moved, we moved in a very, uh, when they move you as an immigrant, they tend to put you in the bad neighborhoods. know, kids who fight every day, and and that didn't bother me none, because when I was in the refugee camps, you know, recess for us was you go in the field and you go at it. So the idea of like confrontation didn't bother me. So in that sense, the harsh environment of being in the ghetto in, in Memphis, Tennessee was nothing because I'd been in the camp, but more importantly, the discipline I had learned to study on my own in the refugee camps is what drove me through. I learned that watching kids in the sixth grade, they knew cartoon characters, they knew BET characters, but they had no idea what the homework was for the day. And that informed another value. I don't. I've never owned a television for that reason. I said I don't want to be able to know someone's business that I know my own. And so the move, in a way, was culturally shocking, but it was manageable. But more so, it helped me focus and determine to stick to the fundamentals, right? To spend time improving myself and also not waste too much time in sort of the noise of media and entertainment.
0: Oh, wow. I mean, I, I guess you're just an embodiment of life. Sometimes it's not even what happens to you, but what you make out of it and what you can make happen to you, you know, happen for you. So thanks for that reminder. Now, um, the next question for you will be this. I know you have an engineering background and you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur. I get the science part of it. you um, need to develop solutions to help with you know, electricity and all that. How did you develop the flair for business? And tell us more about the services you provide. Absolutely. 98% of my business acumen comes from my mother. Hey. She's like
1: a businesswoman. I mean, you know, in the refugee camp, she'd make popcorn and sell it to get me money for snacks. So she's very creative. The science side is my dad. Um, so I think, right, a long time ago, I discovered something that the, the, the meaning of life is to discover your gift, whatever your gift is. For me, it was uncertainty in the early days. But that uncertainty came to be around the math that is required to quantify risk. That's why I'm good at risk. Credit scoring is risk. Predictive grid analysis is risk. Banking is risk. Um, but the purpose of life is to give that gift away. And so I discovered when I was uh, doing uh, energy work that the, the way for an invention to be able to have the greatest impact is to reach as many people as possible. And science was very limited in that scale. So for everyone to be able to get a solar panel, a cell phone, access to drugs, access to education. You had to create a financial system to make it possible for them to do it. And that financial system entailed, if everyone has a dollar in their pockets, how do you make it $1,000 in their pockets? If something costs $100, how do you make it $5? So the business acumen was a means to be able to allow more people to benefit from what I had, which is the ability for them to access electricity, access electricity affordably and everywhere
0: wow thanks for that and kudos to your parents for you know um, I guess the person that gifting you from your mom that your mom's entrepreneurial acumen to your dad's you know science and all that um, so now the next question for you is two of your companies are tailored to meet the needs of farmers and low income earners was there any specific reason why it's decided to focus on these groups of people and what has that been like for you
1: yes absolutely it has been very unforgiving Right, there, there are things that are just insanely difficult, and especially, you know, doing doing business on the continent. Um, if I had to describe it, it's like imagine if you had to cut with a sharp razor the wrist of your hand. How painful that would be! Doing business in Africa is more painful than that. Right. So if 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 you don't feel like this is your purpose in life don't bother doing it because it will damage you beyond repair. Why those two uh, particular ventures? My original goal, right, when I graduated Stanford, I won their biggest tech competition for inventing a solar oven. Uh, At the time, that weighed uh, 69 ounces and and cost like 25 cents. And I wanted to bring this to where it was needed the most, right? 90% of the content is off-grid. And that's when I realized to scale a business an idea, you needed a business concept. But later on, five years later, when I worked with the government, with off-grid energy companies, I realized that all these people that were trying to bring the solar panels to, it didn't matter how awesome the panel was, if people couldn't afford it, it couldn't make any sense. And that's when I became fascinated with how do people in the informal sector bank themselves? How do they access money? The U.S. solved it in the 1940s with the FICO score. In America, if you have a credit score, you can get a house, a car, a, a wife. Uh, well,
0: uh, <laughs> you can get whatever you want. That was a
1: joke. Right? And some people will ask you a FICO score on your first date. Before, yeah. Right? That as well is important. But in Africa, we don't have it. And so I set out to do the same so that if this person makes $100 a month, how do we get it to 10000 And then with that 10000 uh, they can do whatever they want with it. Um, and if the farmer the thing came to bear over two reasons. Number one is when we credit scored people in the different sectors, uh, most of them had very high default rates. It, and for every loan, commercial banks in Africa were losing 25%. Savings and loans, 34%. Microfinance companies, over 50%. But those that were lending to smallholder farmers over a period of 10 years had a 98, 99 repayment rate. So we realize farmers have a very high aptitude for paying back as long as you give them time to harvest their crop and pay back. And by the way, uh, there's about half a billion farmers on the continent of Africa. 69% of the world's arable land is on the continent. And we're going to to be a billion, billion, 1.2 billion. And about half of us, uh, are going to be in a About 80% of us are going to be under age of 17. So it was the largest opportunity to be able to have impact. And so I saw the opportunity to bank farmers, which right now I'm working. My credit scoring company has deviated into two directions. One is the typical credit scoring. The second is a farmer bank, a bank for smallholder farmers, tailored for them, for their needs, for what they need. We go to them. They don't come to us. And the point was, Banking farmers was the single biggest opportunity to uplift 500 million people out of poverty in a single generation. I'll give you one example. In the western region of Ghana, which grows about 20% of the world's cacao, there's a farmer named Joseph. Joseph has six children, and all six of those children are in university. His oldest son just graduated from medical school in Cuba. He's paid for all their school fees from proceeds from the farm. So I figured, why not make all those 500 billion smallholder farmers a Joseph? So that, like I said, not in five generations, but in a single generation, they can uplift themselves from poverty. So that is why I do what I do.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. I mean, I agree with you. My mom is a farmer and they they have such, you know... um, that is the good target target groups to help people like lift people from poverty, lift their lift generations from poverty. So a branch off question from that would be for those of us in the diasporas, what are some of the ways we can get involved in, you know, um helping in the agro sector, considering the risk, you know, involved in it, especially if you're not hands-on and you know, there in person. As we know that a lot of businesses in um Africa fail for that reason. If you're not there in person, you know, forget about it. Absolutely, yes. So
1: that that's very important, right? You have to be very hands on, on on the continent. Um, and the agricultural value chain has a lot of sort of blocks, right? There is there are the inputs, there is there is the farming itself, there's the equipment, there is uh, the, the farm the farmers themselves that get into groups. They have women groups, male groups, groups by crop. And so, depending on your expertise, uh, let me say, for example, uh, I believe that if you're going to spend your money in something, investing in something, you have to be able to have the set sort of skills to sort of make a difference, right? So, I will give um, yourself as an example. I know you have a PhD in pharmacy, so therefore, you know about drugs. I'm very ignorant about drugs. So, what, I, what I may say may be all, but it's, as an example... They are companies now that are working to digitize uh, farmer records across the continent. One of those is a company called m based in Ghana. And so if your interest is in participating in ARG, you can look at M-Farmer's uh, initiatives for farmers and be able to support them either with an investment, I don't believe in doing things for charity, uh, or uh, you can spend a part of your time advising them and helping them in do those programs the right way in exchange for equity or pay in in, in, in sort of uh, for your services. So the value chain requires a lot of different skills that you can pick and see who's doing it right and get involved. It, it is it is the last frontier, right? Asia is emerging markets. Africa is the frontier markets. All the wealthy individuals in America, all the Wall Street titans are all investing their money on the continent because it is the last place to make obscenely wild returns on investments. So why aren't we natives of the continent participating in that?
0: I mean that is so true. We cannot leave our you know our home front and then invest in other in other countries, and then forget about the continent. And I think it also ties to what you said earlier on about the younger demographics. I think Africa as a continent boasts of a younger, you know, um, stronger workforce. We can definitely leverage on that. And I loved what you said about just the different ways of, you know, being a part of it. You can advise, you can, you know, get form of payment through equity. And so for those listening, this is just, you know, an encouragement, you know, to get more involved in the motherland. Now, let's talk a little bit about one of your companies called CreditMark credit mark, sorry, and I can definitely understand your love for predictive AI kind of, you know, branched into um, preventing people from defaulting on loans, you know, beforehand. So using that, you know, leveraging your skills in, you know, predictive technology. Now, since it's launched in 2018, what has it been like, especially the ups and downs of um, conducting business in the modern land? And what are some of the lessons you can, you know, um, throw away as far as what you've learned so far?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I think the lesson of doing business on the continent, especially being young and an African myself, is a lot of the... The analogy I give in doing business in Africa is... And I, I love, you know, I want to predecess this, but I love the, the place. I spend my best years of my life there. I'm still doing business there. But the analogy is this. Uh, the cities, the roads in the cities have tiny potholes. As you leave the cities and go to the outskirts, there is... There's uh, manholes, bigger ones. And the more you go into the booth, there's sort of like black holes. The ones where <laughs> 18 will <laughs> disappear and go into, right? in that Triangle. <laughs> Bingo. So, Africa is full of such manholes. Figuratively, when you do business, right? It's full of landmines everywhere. And those things are said there by the powers that be for them to retain power and influence. That's something you got to deal with. Reminds me of uh, a a, a verse, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. When Jesus goes back to his hometown, he performs miracles. And instead of being happy about it, people are like, isn't that the carpenter? He's a small boy. When you go back to Africa and you're trying to do great things for them, they'll treat you like this. They'll say, ah, this one's a small boy. Who is he? Look at him. He doesn't know anything. I'll give you an example. This predictive energy AI company that I started last year, when I went to uh, an African company, the biggest energy provider in a specific country, that I'm not going to mention, they have about 70% power outages. We could predict those power outages. We could prevent them. When I went to the guy that runs the National Company of Energy, I said, look, use this software for free. See if it works. The man said, ah, Rob, how much money are you going to pay me to use this thing? (laughs) <laughs> and this is, the, this is the same software that America's largest power companies, think of the top biggest five, are paying me for it. People in Japan are calling me for it. The largest telecom companies in America are calling me for it. But our own people say, ah, how much will you pay me for it? So I think that's, that's the continent for it. It's brutal, it's tough, uh, uh, but you got to expect it. Specifically, credit marks. Uh, credit marks was built as a way to be able to Serve more people with less risk. And I realized that things are not what they seem. When I went to the microfinance companies and tried to give them this tool, they didn't really care. And I later discovered why. When the average person starts a microfinance company on the continent in West Africa, it's not to make money. When you are going to get a loan from a microfinance company, you have to put up 30% of the loan as savings. The microfinance owner takes that money. And instead of holding it for you and investing it and returning it to it in six months, he uses, he chops that money. He uses it to build a house, buy a car, maybe get one or two mistress. So he doesn't care for his loan portfolio. So me who was bringing this tool, they were like, ah, you small boy, you don't know anything, right? So what I would say on you know, the continent is nothing is what it seems. If somebody tells you something, you have to sort of try and verify it. Another basic example is This is how gray area things are there. If you ask a taxi driver the price to drop you from your chair to your front door, you ask 10 of them, you'll get 10 different answers. So that is the biggest challenge. But once you can overcome that, it's uh, then finding sort of competent people, which is very hard to find to sort of make it happen. So for credit marks, it was understanding why microfinance companies behave that way going beyond them and discovering the smallholder farmer segment. And understanding that these people are providing 20% of the world's cacao, whose demand is growing, they had a value chain. So everything was set. There was a small missing link, which was to bank them. And that's sort of what's made this very compelling because about 90% of the value chain was already solved. The 10% that wasn't there, nobody else was willing to do it. So that's been the credit mark story and so far it's, it's been quite interesting and, and hopefully you know sometime next year we can actually launch the bank and, and be able to bank these farmers
0: well um, I can imagine the struggles of being the first to enter markets and the market's quite as you know challenging as the African space because there's so much bureaucracy red tips and you know misappropriation of you know, funds and even just a lot of government issues. So, give you kudos on that for, you know, braving that risk. Now, um, would there be some things you would say you've learned so far if you could do things differently? What would you do differently, if any, as far, as far as, you know, launching into an African market space? What are some of the things you would, you would do differently if you could go back in time?
1: Well, that's a tough question. I think the best thing I did for myself was. Uh, it's, you want to be as immersive as possible. There's a lot of things that go on that you cannot just see from a distance, right? So to your point earlier, if you want to start a business on the continent, you can't do it remotely. you got to be able to go there and see it for yourself. So going, when I went to Ghana, I actually didn't even stay in the capital city in Accra. I went to a sort of the second city, which is Kumasi. and now outside of Kumasi. On a dirt road in the middle of a maize field, you know, just as local as it gets... And that's why I was able to calibrate and understand what happens. That's number one. Number two, specifically, again, for the African context, it's extremely political, very political. 99% of business on the continent is political, 1% everything else. So what you want to try to do is you want to try and understand, get people that have power politically who are uh, incentivized to see you succeed. So I'll give you an example with Ghana and cacao, right? There are certain foreign dignitaries that, from Ghana that serve in Europe whose job is to provide as much cacao as possible to the European market. Cacao is important. It's, chocolate is the number one uh, contributor to the economy of the Netherlands and one of the biggest ones for Belgium and Switzerland. So the ambassadors to those three countries are incentivized to make sure that industry works. So I work with them to engage the local people. So you wanna find as much as possible political individuals that can block and tackle for you because without that, you get squashed immediately.
0: I mean, spot on, be very savvy. Don't come with your diaspora knowledge without understanding the landscape of the countries you're entering and get some power. It's it's especially for Christians who think, you know, oh yeah, if they're not Christians, you can associate with them. Even Jesus knew the importance of that. They had friends who could stay over their houses and all that. So get yourself some power and use that leverage to build what you want to do. So thank you for that reminder. Now, as a Nigerian, I'm curious to know why Ghana? You know, there are other, you know, nicer countries in Africa. Just kidding. But why Ghana? Why, what was Ghana very specific to you as a market to enter? Was there any um, specialty about it relative to other countries in Africa? Uh,
1: when I first went, went there, it was very random. Most of the work I had done for the U.S. government was mostly East Africa right? Obama had roots in Kenya. So all his, most of his power Africa work was in Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania. And so they, you know, they told me we have, we're trying to launch in West Africa. I said, well, I mean, what's that in my business? They said, you should go and check it out. And I did. I came for what was, this was in 2016. I came for what was a three-day conference and everything they said about energy from the technical side at the conference was wrong. I could tell. But the economic dynamics they were saying about Africa didn't feel right. And so I decided to, halfway in the middle of the first day, take a car and go to the middle of town to check things out for myself. And then I took a bus from Accra to Kumasi, six hours. Because if you want to understand Africa, you don't go to the largest city. You go to the second largest, the local ones. And it felt to me back then that Ghana was 10, 15 years behind Kenya. As far as clean tech, fintech, and this was an opportunity to do things right that Kenya had done wrong. So my decision to stay there initially was gut, right? People are like Robert, you're a man of science and data. What was the data? So it was not data. It felt, it felt right. But really, my my interest there, as far as farming is concerned, as I mentioned, Ghana and Africa produce sixty percent of the world's cacao. Nowhere else is such a commodity concentrated. And chocolate is a $150 billion industry. That's been growing at 4.5% since 1996. The productivity has been going down. And the value chain is completely linked. The farmers are in groups, 3,000 groups. They have 52 companies that compete to transport the good from the farm to the warehouse. They have demand like crazy from the European countries. And what's unique about them is it's the only commodity that has a set price. So before every season, you know how much a kilogram of cacao is going to be. More important than that, Ghanaian cacao is more pre-sold than Apple products. So 80% of cacao before it's even harvested is sold. So if you want to go in and try and bank farmers, this was the best commodity to start because everything was set. And of course, after that, expand to other places. So it made sense from a, a market perspective. And that's where I've chosen to start. But of course, I intend to expand into maize, into cotton in Malawi, into vanilla in Madagascar, into tea in, Ke- in Kenya and Rwanda, and of course, coffee in
0: Italy. Wow. How about Nigeria? I know we used to have a you know, research resourceful cocoa, uh, sorry, locative cocoa business, but that's dwindled. Any hope for Nigeria expanding to any of the... Yeah,
1: I, th- I, think, I think Nigeria has a couple of uh, institutions that uh, – Dario Partners is an institution in Nigeria that has found a way to successfully pre-finance smallholder farmers in the maize sector. So they provide – they find you a buyer, they give you the resources to plant, and they give you the money before you even put the seed in the ground. So there is there is, there is interesting opportunity there, but also Nigeria is very – it's a leader in fintech. Right, yeah. they are digit—they're digitizing everything, and I love anything digital. So I think the 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 opportunities are, are very compelling there as well. I just haven't studied it as closely as I have these other countries. Okay, okay.
0: Now this very next question is going to be about Nigeria and Ghana, and you have to answer it very carefully because it's going to determine our next you know conversation. Jollof rice, Nigerian or Ghanaian variety? Choose your answer wisely, Rob.
1: Nigeria has the best pepper soup ever.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I saw what to did there. That, that, is, that is
1: my final answer.
0: But right, both I'll, of
1: those I'll... countries, let's be fair, both of those countries have amazing uh, uh, bushmeat gross cutter.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about jollof rice, but I, you know, you're up now, you know. Why, I, I fight, why fight when we can? We can show love to each other. So that's that's there, what I'm getting there's at. There's no jollof rice, girl. I love your answer I love you. <laughs> now, yeah. we're kind of winding down now, and you've, you, you know, you've amassed a lot of success. You know, you've taken hardships that could cripple people, and I don't, I can't even say you probably still don't have nightmares from those days, but we've seen a lot of success that's come out of it, mm-hmm. and. um like you, I've had some adversity, but not in the same scale as yours. But I've grown up in places where, you know, to come out of that and be what I am today, it's nothing, you know, but the grace of God and, of course, great and determination to move on. But sometimes I still, you know, um, grapple with guilt, especially of surviving, of, you know, moving beyond where you've grown up. Like my, I'm not like the zip code, zip code I grew up in, but when I interact with people that I left behind, I still sometimes go back and think, you know, how did I get this far away? So how do you cope if any, uh, have you, you know, um, had any guilt with success? There was something Rob Maldonado said, he said, it's dangerous to both succeed and to fail. If I succeed, I'm going to have to face the guilt. And if I fail, I'm going to have to face the shame of failure. Have you had any um, guilt related to your success? And how have you, if you've had, how have you, you know, coped with that so far?
1: Absolutely. So I'll answer that question three ways. When you feel guilty for being successful, which I don't at all, it's because you feel like you owe those people something. You don't owe them anything. If you feel like you owe them something and you help them, it means that in turn, they also owe you gratitude, which they don't. Again, to refer back to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, a huge on, on faith, forgive me, but th- there is an instance in uh, Luke chapter 11, 17, 11 through 19, Jesus, at some point in time, heals 10 lepers. He heals 10 people. Mm? Only one came back. Only one came back to say thank you. So, are we better than him? No. So, you do what you can because... It is, it is it is, your purpose. As I mentioned earlier, remember, the meaning of life is to discover your gift. Your purpose in life is to give I mean, that gift away. You know I, mean? I give that gift away because it is my purpose, not because I also cite your society, owes me. And that mentality is what continually re-energizes me, right? there, There is a concept in sports called uh, the runner's high. The runner's high happens, I'm a, I'm a runner. It happens when you run for so long, you feel pain after some time, Adrenaline kicks in, endorphins kick in, and then it's 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 more fun to keep running than to stop. And when you get to the runners, are you are in the zone? Effort, excellence becomes effortless. When you find that thing that nobody can pay you enough to do, and nobody can pay you enough to stop doing, that is what you do. Whether it's for you, for other people, and that is how you sort of find that purpose and live by that purpose. And for me, what I do for my for for the people of the continent is I have a gift and I'm giving that gift away. I don't expect thanks, but at the same time I don't owe them anything.
0: Wow. Thank you. (laughs) I was expecting two more points, but I think it's kind of um, wrapped into one. Definitely that's a very good point to um, live by. Like just Live your purpose and invariably you're, you're paying something back. It might not be on an individual level, but you're changing lives, perhaps on a population level as well. Um, yeah. finally, would be this, um, what kind of words of encouragement would you give for young people who are still, um, I guess, um, grasping with, you know, the trauma of their past experiences so much so that they've not been able to live in their purpose. Now, um, some might say, oh, well, it's easy for you to say because you've got a lot of handouts, you're able to, you know, leave the camp and then move to Tennessee. But that didn't happen for me. So, you know, but for those that might just be willing to listen, at least to learn it, one one or two things from your story, One lessons of encouragement would you give for people that might be stuck in that camp of, you know, you know, I'm a survivor, but then I'm still traumatized by this, I can't, like, get past it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tough question. Um... I'll probably go back to what I've already mentioned earlier, which is all 7 billion human beings are unique. We have something special about us that uh, nobody else has. And that is our gift. I think it is your job in life to find what that gift is. For some, it's music, some it's sports, some it's medicine. Some, it's healers like yourself, right? If you ask me the difference between Advil and Tylenol, even if it was labeled in bright red letters, I couldn't tell, right? That is that is your gift. And I give you my word, you'll never find fulfillment unless you live by giving that gift away. So wherever you are, whether it's a refugee camp in the Congo or, or some other place, some rural place, let's say in Liberia, off the grid, you have a special gift. Find out what that gift is. Do the best you can every day to be true to that gift by giving it away. And I'm very certain you will be wealthy and successful beyond measure. And not just financially, right? Money is a byproduct, but you'll be fulfilled beyond what you can imagine. As long as you become maniacally obsessed about finding what that gift is and living your life every day giving that gift away.
0: Absolutely. That's a very... um... Very robust response, and you know that gifts because it's probably what's going to keep you up at night if you're not doing if you're not engaging in it, so um quiet the noise and try to hone that soft silent voice nagging at the back of your mind why are you not doing this why are you not doing this and find that maybe engage with people that might encourage you as well and see how people have succeeded in you know carving that passion for themselves but i agree with what rob said you know there's always something in us we're all we're all enabled in different ways you don't have to do what i do you know sitting down behind the mic or doing my research your calling might be different but we all have that gift because you know i believe there's so much more purpose to us than just you know Cheers in the rat race. Well, those are all my questions, Rob. I want to say thank you so much for um, being on the show today. I don't know if you had any final thoughts before I rounded us off. Your questions were phenomenal. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, this was it, guys. Um, don't forget to catch up on previous episodes in the show. And I remain your host, Masibel. Bye for now. All right, Rob. I'm done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Most Sable Podcast. Well, guess what? There's plenty more where that came from. So visit our website at www.mosibyl.com. That is www.mosible.com, where you can find hours of other binge-worthy episodes just like this one. And while you're at it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Podbean as it encourages other awesome people like you to listen to the podcast as well. We are now officially on Podbean. It has an app. You can catch up on missed episodes and also get a notification when we have new episodes. Do you have a question for our guest, feedback on the episode, or a suggestion for a future guest? Then please get in touch with us by sending us an email at talktomoatmostable.com or connect with us via Instagram. At the Moral Civil Podcast. Cannot wait to hear from you and thank you so much for always listening. Music.